You're listening to Second on the Mount, a podcast of sermons from Second Presbyterian Church, located on Mountain Avenue in Roanoke, Virginia. We are glad you found us. My name is Elizabeth Link, and I'm the executive pastor. Each week, we climb into the pulpit with a bit of fear and trembling. We hope and pray that what we have to say is true to God's will for the church and may encourage and challenge you on your journey of discipleship. Please rate and review if you enjoy. May the Spirit have some word for you in what we have to share. Please pray with me. May the words in my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our gospel story for today comes from the New Testament gospel of Luke, chapter 17, and may be found on page 847 of your pew Bible if you would like to follow along. It's the story of Jesus healing the ten lepers. Interestingly, among all the reforms of the 16th century, Martin Luther was once asked to describe the nature of true worship. He replied that the nature of true worship could be found in the tenth leper turning back. You may see what he meant in just a few moments as we unpack the story. Before we come to it, it may also help you to know that Jesus is traveling in a borderland. Samaria and Galilee border each other. And even though our text will say so, there's no actual region between. You're either on one side of the border or the other. But Luke doesn't worry too much about geography. The route he describes of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, on his way to the cross, is by no means a direct one. And it appears to be that the journey, for Luke anyway, is the point. The encounters Jesus has along the way reveal something not only about who he is, but about the nature of the kingdom he will establish. So let's listen now to these words for the church today from Luke 17, beginning with verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, Were not ten men made clean? But the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a pitiful scene, really. In my favorite children's storybook Bible, the men are pictured huddled together under the shade of a tree. Wrapped in bandages on their leprous faces and extremities, they had no one to turn to for help. Living on the edge of society, they existed in an in-between place. They could not be with their families. They could not sleep in their own homes. 
Fear by those they used to call friends and family, they were forced to beg for people's pocket change and scraps of food to survive. They were sick, and they were lonely, and they had to be sad. Despite all that was wrong with them, however, the men could hear. They knew who was coming and going throughout the town, and one day, they heard him coming. The Gospels tell us that wherever Jesus went, a crowd was sure to follow, and the men heard the commotion of Jesus coming up the road, and they had heard that Jesus could do amazing things. They saw their chance, and they seized it. They cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And he did. Jesus tells them to go and show themselves to the priests. Now, the priest was the only one who could certify them as leprosy negative. So the men obey. They started down the road together, all ten, when somewhere along the way, they discover their skin is clear. Their wounds aren't weeping. Their pain is gone. They have been healed. Almost all of them continue on to the priests because that's what Jesus told them to do and because that's what the rules say. Priests are the only ones with authority to return them to their families, their jobs, and their lives that they had known before. Ten men were healed, but one man drops back, stops, and turns around. He runs back, praising God with a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet, pouring out the gladness of his thanksgiving. And as Luke points out, this one was a Samaritan. We don't know how he came to hang with the other nine, but I suppose tribalism must fall away when you're on the margins. And now though this man is healed, he remains yet an outsider, whether a priest proclaims him clean or not. As Barbara Brown Taylor describes him, he had been a double outsider, a leper confined to live his life in the outskirts of town, and a Samaritan despised by his Galilean neighbors. At first glance, this is a healing story. Ten men were healed, and one man said thank you. But on a deeper level, our story is about gratitude from an unlikely place. As Debbie Thomas writes, it is about the gratitude of a foreigner who receives welcome. In her 2016 Christian Century Commentary, writer Debbie Thomas shares a memory. She says, One day, when I was four years old and bored, I went snooping in my father's study. In the bottom drawer of a filing cabinet, I found a manila folder with four navy blue booklets wrapped in tissue paper. One of them, I discovered to my delight when I unwrapped it, had a baby picture of me inside, along with several pleasingly blank pages needing art. Grabbing a pencil, I climbed into my dad's desk chair and began to draw. I don't know how many pages I defaced before my father walked into the study and caught me. What are you doing? He cried, snatching the booklet out of my hand and flipping through its now grubby pages. Only after he took the pencil and set to work erasing my drawings with tremendous care did I realize he wasn't angry. He was frightened. What are those? I asked, stunned that I had unnerved my father. Our passports, he said, scattering eraser shavings all over the place. 
He sighed and kept erasing. These books are what prove we belong here. Without them, he didn't finish the sentence. Never play with such things again, he said. I didn't. Even now, decades later, I treat my U.S. passport gingerly, like an icon or a fragile bit of lace. When I travel internationally with my kids, I hover over their passports, checking often to make sure they haven't left them in seat back pockets or an airport Starbucks. They laugh at me, but I don't care. Something in me insists on vigilance. My father's old immigrant fear. The fear of not belonging. Of being cast out. Lives on. The story in Luke 17 is not only a healing story. It is about identity. About exclusion and inclusion. Exile and return. And it is about the kingdom of God. It tells us something important about who was invited and who belongs and who thrives in the realm where God dwells. Both Samaritans and Jews claim to be the true descendants of Abraham. Samaritans had evolved in the northern kingdom as a result of the Assyrian exile and return. They read from the first five books, the Pentateuch, and the first five books that we call in our Bible, and they worship God in a place called Mount Gerizim. The Jews evolved in the southern kingdom, like Jesus, and they read the Pentateuch, plus some additional books like the prophets and the writings, what we have come to know and call our Old Testament. And they worship God in a place called Jerusalem. For us, from the outside looking in, it can be hard for us to see why they're so different and why they despised each other. But is it not true that we find it hardest to accept those with whom we disagree when the shared foundation is so close to our own? Like a family member whose politics have shifted so far in one direction or the other, our immigrant neighbors who let their chickens wander in their front yard and their children run wild and barefooted. Or the church down the street that declares they're the only ones with biblical preaching. Isn't it true that when it comes down to it, despite our differences, we hold more in common than not? Years ago, Chris and I attended a Lake Fellow reunion at my former church, Second Presbyterian Church in Indianapolis. It was the church's 175th anniversary, and they had invited all the formal pastoral residents like me back to celebrate. There were dozens of us who traveled to represent the program's many years of dedication to new pastors through that program. We met men and women who are now pastors of congregations across the country in many different contexts. One alum of the program had been serving as a pastor in a small church in West Virginia. I believe he serves there still. At dinner one evening, we were all asked to share where we found hope for the future of the church. One pastor responded that the youth and her church youth group were what gave her hope. Another shared that she found hope in the work of her church deacons. Another said he gave thanks for the medical clinic that meets in the basement of his church. And then this West Virginia pastor stood and shared about the tension that existed in his context. He shared about the addiction woes his community had faced, how his son had been the only child that did not have to be weaned off of drugs when he was born and placed in the NICU after his birth. 
He shared how opioids were changing the face of his neighborhood where his church served and the racism that remained ingrained in that town. He said he knew for a fact that he had members in his congregation that were now or had been in their past members of the KKK. It was hard to see where he was going. There wasn't much hope in what he'd had to offer us thus far. Then the pastor told us about how a refugee resettlement program had relocated a large number of African refugees into the heart of his town, and many lived within walking distance of his church. These people, his church members who had lived there for generations, were not too pleased to have these outsiders as their new neighbors moving into vacant houses and apartments and taking vacant jobs. Soon, some of these refugees started to show up for worship. The pastor was glad to have them, but also a little worried. What would some of his members say about, or worse, worse, what would some of his members say to these new visitors that they were already dubious about? Time passed, and to his relief, members of his church seemed to get used to the African neighbors who worshipped and sang with them each Sunday morning. Slowly, they were integrating into the life of the church, attending Sunday school, volunteering, and serving on committees, even one man being nominated to serve as an elder. The pastor said he held his breath as the congregation took a vote and passed the slate of elders through. He held his breath again on the Sunday when the man knelt and was ordained and installed before the congregation. So far, he thought, things were going smoothly. But then it came time for the new elders to serve communion for the first time on Maundy Thursday night. It was a popular service in his church, and the small sanctuary was nearly full. And then the pastor saw it. He realized that the African man was set to serve communion to the front row. And there, on the end seat, inside the aisle in that first pew, sat an old man the pastor knew to have been a former Ku Klux Klan Grand Dragon. It was one thing for the man to sit in the sanctuary rows away from his African neighbor. It was another for the former Grand Dragon to break bread and share the cup with someone whose race he despised. And the pastor knew, too, that in that moment, everyone in the church would be able to see if things went wrong. pastor's breath caught in his chest. You could feel it catch again as he retold it. The hope he had for the church that he'd witnessed that night at communion took place as he watched the kind, generous, friendly new elder graciously give bread and cup. He saw two hands of different races touch, and the older man's posture shift to one of straight, to one of gentleness and gratitude as he received the grace passed his way. Somehow in the sharing of that meal, division fell away. This is what gave the pastor hope. Hope that people can change. Hope that the church is ushering in God's kingdom. Hope that the work he witnessed was more than the fruit of his own labor. Only Jesus could wipe away boundaries like that. Only Jesus could heal the hate in an old man's heart. Only Jesus could offer himself that we might be transformed. Ten men were healed. One man turned back. 
No one would have blamed him if he'd run on with the rest. But he's not like the rest. A pronouncement from a priest won't make him clean because in Galilee he will always be unclean, an outsider. To his neighbors he will never fit in. Yet somehow he is exactly the one who shows us how to live as though we are in the inside. Somehow he shows us how to respond with thanksgiving and praise. As Paul Duke describes, the story moves like worship itself. Ten people face Jesus. Ten voices call out his name and say, have mercy. Ten people hear the good news of cleansing. One of them sings a song of praise and bows down in thanksgiving. And then comes the benediction. Rise and go. Today is World Communion Sunday. We celebrate and give thanks that in churches around the globe, people of every race and language share one table. And this table is wide. It's not just our table. It's not just a Presbyterian table. And this table is great. In our tradition, we say that we believe that this table is a foretaste of a great heavenly banquet to come. Nothing was more serious to Luke than a dinner table. At the table, time and time again in the Gospels, Jesus broke bread with tax collectors, sinners, and sex workers. He welcomed children. He touched the untouchable. He gave blessing and benediction to the foreigner. Around the table that Christ prepares, we give thanks for God's creative power, redeeming love, and sustaining care. With gratitude, we recall Christ's gracious life, his saving death, and his life-giving resurrection. We enjoy a foretaste of a heavenly banquet to come when we will break bread and feast with God in God's eternal realm. Ten lepers stood at a dutiful distance and called out, Master. One draws close, dares intimacy, and finds his truest self. It is not in his disease. It is not in his ethnicity. It is not even in his religion. It is in the truth that he is a child of God. And he discovers what happens when gratitude spills over into love. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.